Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. This is a bonus episode of the podcast. For those of you who listened last week, we have special guests, James and Beth in to discuss the post-Civil War history of Carnton. We realized there was just so much more to be said we had to do around two. So this is round two of our conversation with James and Beth. Right after the last one ended, (laughs) there was an immediate thought of, there's more we could have talked about. So what, where would be a good place to start? What, um, do, do we, what's the earliest thing chronologically that you've thought back through we should mention? The charter, I think, being signed November 30th, 1976. I thought that was really cool that they were very intentional about the, day. the November 30th. So they actually geared the, the day they signed the charter mm-hmm. to make sure it was the anniversary of the battle. Right. And they hired John McGall also on November 30th. As a resident director. 1978. So, lived, so that'd be two years later, the, two years after the charter? Yeah. So I thought that was kind of neat. They were being very, again, intentional about their thinking. Did you think through any of the individuals involved in that process? Like who, who would be important to mention that was active in those days? So the first person, their name was hard to read. We couldn't read. Oh, no. That signed the charter. There were 11 people that signed the charter. But Joe Willoughby, Harry Guffey, Joe Pinkerton. Sam Fleming, Battle Rhodes, Margaret Wyatt, James Armstead, Stuart Campbell, Virginia Bowman, and John Sugg, Jr. I was just reading through the minutes of the early 1900s of the McGavick Cemetery Association. Mm-hmm. There was a guy who signed it with the name Bowman. Is that related to Virginia Bowman? I think it's her I think her husband's grandfather. Grandfather. Oh, nice. Very wow. cool. And so many of these people had... Ancestors who were in the war. Oh, certainly. Yeah. They did. Yeah. In the battle. What do you think that they were hoping they were accomplishing in those early days? Mm-mm, was it so just making things. sure the house wasn't torn down? Or were they hoping that it would That was become... certainly part of it. Yes. She says by a hair's breath, right? That both houses were, were saved, both Carnton and Carter, by a hair's breath. And that they both looked so horrible. She mentioned that it was her thought that the UDC had wanted to save both houses, but... They weren't able to. So it was up to private individuals. And she went on and on about the development and how twice, I guess, Carnton almost faced being torn down. Yes, I guess it was the threat of development. Mm-hmm. That there was the thought that it might become a housing development and maybe the house, a clubhouse. Unbelievable. So it wasn't like Carter House, the, the story is that it was going to potentially be torn down to put a gas station there. And Car- Carnton was just going to be a casualty of... The growth of the city. Right. Encroachment. I think that's exactly right. Did, was it immediately the thought that they were going to be opening it as a historic site for guests to come and like you buy a ticket to tour it? To our understanding. Oh, yes. Yeah. What do you think they would think looking at what we've done now? Oh, I think they'd be so proud. Don't you think? They would be. Oh my gosh. So proud. Well, we know some of Virginia Bowman's thoughts at the later portion of her life, right? Because yes. she only passed away recently. Right. Just Two, a year ago. A year ago? She was a character. Very passionate. Her stories were very consistent, too, from what she wrote here in her little yeah, memories. She, she stuck to what was known. Absolutely. When telling the story. So she made sure there was no embellishment of the facts. 
No. In her time. She was very consistent. And she was the first, was it secretary of the board? She was the recording secretary. Recording secretary. And we have her papers. She gave those to me personally. And so we processed them and put them in the archives. So she was our first technical archive collection of early papers. Of course, she was papers. county historian for decades. She used to store everything in paper bags. Lots of paper bags. That's how she would sort them. And so she brought it out and gave those to me. And she said, well, I guess you should have them. The most beautiful handwriting. Perfect. Every single line. Perfect. No scratching out. Just incredible. So a lot of those early days, a lot of the records of those early days is through her hand, her individual handwriting. And we would have nothing if she hadn't written it down. We'd really have no records at all. So very important. She talked about, you know, what the house physically looked like, the pressures that they faced of trying to make it pretty fast when the roof was leaking and the ceilings were, you know, damaged by water and dampness. She told about a tour in the house one day and the snake fell from the second floor down into the hallway below and she said it created a stampede. (laughs) (laughs) And you had a similar experience not long ago. Do we want to tell? Sure. Of course you want to tell James. Absolutely. That was a few years ago in the fall. I had a group, fairly good sized group and we were going upstairs and I was midway of the group I guess and Got almost up to the second floor and noticed a snake on a step. And no one had seen it, a small one. The group got up there, and I called someone from the Vista Center to come over and see about it. That person got it out, but... How how uh, recent was, was this? It was uh, a couple of years ago. Not was long. it in Brian I's time as we were here, or before our time? Oh, in your time. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yes. You know, the, good thing was, I did not know about this story. Nothing new under the sun. I've never found a snake in the house, but there was, um, is it a skink? Yeah. Like a little, mm-hmm. one of those little yeah. lizards? I mm-hmm. found one of those in the house once. Yeah. But I did find a, a leaf I thought was a dead mouse. So. <laughs> oh, gosh. Turned out just feeling. I know I could never be an archaeologist. So many of the reports with all of this material talk about, you know, all the rodent parts that they find, like when they were going through the slave house and the 1815 wing and they sorted all those out and kept them for us which was just really nice what was the next step they saved the house they made sure it was a historic site and then and then what happens we got the resident director and then i think they really started a campaign to try to to work with the uh, family because we have all those letters that john wrote to like jacob mcgavick and so forth yes they searched for original items and were able back then to acquire a few. Mm-hmm. How involved was were the descendants of the McGavick family in those early days? It's really because of them, I think, that other people followed suit and started kind of, I won't say cleaning out their houses, but thinking about when they downsized, you know, or whatever their motivation was to, to try to give to the site. And I think two of the main ones that, that I've come across in the collections were Sarah McGavick, Mrs. William McGavick, and Mrs. Hinton Longinot. Jacob McGavick over in Virginia um, were awesome first donors who gave large pieces and multiple pieces and what, set the precedent for their for their children too. What are some of the pieces that they gave? The rocking chair that belonged to Randall said to have been a gift from Andrew Jackson. The dining table, John McGavick's secretary, a parlor table, 
paintings, family Bible. And silver. A number of pieces Mm -hmm. or several pieces of silver. Small chairs. I think we have 16 original pieces of furniture in the house today. Were either of you here uh, giving tours when we got those first pieces? I mean, I'm just interested to see how that was then the tour like all about the Jackson Rocker. The Jackson Rocker, I don't recall being in the house in 84. When I met one of the descendants, Mm -hmm. I think it was the niece of the people who gave the rocker. She said that she remembered growing up and going to her aunt's house and seeing the rocker there in their house, but it was covered in red velvet. It was. Mm -hmm. They had it recovered, I guess, early in the 80s. In black leather. Mm -hmm. There were several things like that, possibly, um, silver particularly, that they might put out a goblet. They might put out Mm -hmm. a place setting. Mm -hmm. They kept things in a in a bank vault because they were so fearful, you know, of them mm-hmm. being picked up. And because we didn't have all the sophistication that we have now with the alarms. and Oh, so, so was the like, thought, one day these will mm-hmm. go in the house, but the house isn't ready for them yet? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Correction. I don't know if you've heard this story. <laughs> Correction. Oh, James has <laughs> got a story. This funny Andrew Jackson chair story. Okay. okay. Probably not suitable, but have you not heard it? I don't think so. I don't have know, you James. You have to tell us before we This go. tale, the chair used to be upstairs in the guest room. And the story, it loves a good bit of the emphasis on the earlier period with talk of Jackson as a guest. And the story was that Jackson wanted to stay in that room, that it was a great place to be because from the space he could step out onto the back porch. And of course the problem with the story was that Jackson died years before that porch was at. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that the best? Maybe he was in the small room, and he went out on the portico. Right. Another rumor. He died before that one. Was he did, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. He did. He did. That's really true. There was no porch. It's just all lies. But I love it so much, because you wonder, where did it start? How did it start? The stories like that? Yeah. Yeah. I I'm, I'm wouldn't be surprised if a lot of stories like that just started with somebody saying, you know, when Jackson would visit, like, you, you pointed out as a guest room. Well, you know, when Jackson would visit, he'd probably stay in this room. Right. And then somebody's like, yeah, from there, he could have walked out into the porch. Yeah. Oh, I bet he loved that. And then as the story grows, yeah. it's that was his room, the rocker right. was there because he liked the porch. Absolutely. It's similar. I bet it's similar to the limbs out the windows thing. Oh, my gosh. Two of those stories. One, that the limbs were as tall as the smokehouse, which, of course, is a two-story structure practically. Right? A story and a half. Story yeah. and a half. It would the be other, a huge pile of limbs if that yeah. was the case. Massive. Out the window. Yeah. And up to the first window. Oh, I've heard it. Heard some people say they heard it that the pile was high as the chimney top. Oh, my God. Well, that would, <laughs> that be, would like, be really bad. That'd be like... Oh. So much exaggeration. Half of the indications yeah. done throughout the entire Civil War would And uh, There's no indication anything was thrown from a window. And you can you no. can totally see how a story like that grows in the telling, yeah. where somebody's like, "Yeah, the operations are so bad. I'm sure they had to throw the arms and legs at the window," mm-hmm. and then that gets passed around like it was the truth. And then the bloodstains in Hattie's room, you know, that people mm-hmm. think they can see a head, or they can see mm-hmm. a hip, or they can see a I've leg. I've heard a leg, yeah, yeah, you know, all sorts of things. And you have to think that the house was fully carpeted the day of the battle. And that surgeons often brought straw or hay into the house as well to soak up blood because they knew that this was going to become an infirmary. It was a 
semi-sanitation method and to keep them from from having uh, to slip. It was for sure footing. So they did that often in places. Miss McGavick's footprint in Winder's room, which is hilarious because like of all the people, 700 some soldiers in and out of this house and medics and doctors and children and visitors. How in the world could we ever know that that was one person's mm-hmm. footprint? Right. For one thing, how could we know that it was a footprint? footprint yeah. And yes. on top of that, that it was yes. Carrie's footprint. Right. Exactly. Through maybe there were, maybe you could tell it was a high heel. <laughs> but it isn't. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just a blob. It's just a right. blob. It's just a blob. So, yeah, it's it's very interesting how these things get going. The sad thing is, is that it's there, right? And that mm-hmm. it's unusual and that it's not anywhere else in the house. Yeah, that's the, I mean, you can see how how stories grow in the telling. We can easily go from a conversation like this where we're talking about what could they be to then all of a sudden that, that gets translated on tour to this is this. Exactly. It's a slippery slope. Such Speaking. as we don't know which room the family reserved. Mm-hmm. Right. Liked. Mm-hmm. Many yes would like to know, but mm-hmm. there's no indication. Right. They said They said they left a room for the family. Well, you can probably logically assume it's not one of the ones with blood stains on it because we assume, but you but don't, we can't you don't see. know. Yeah, you don't know for sure. We can't see the three bedrooms that would mm-hmm. be from the eighteen fifteen house. Um, you know, and there's some thought that maybe they were out there because it was further away, but that's an assumption. It truly is. It well, would have been difficult getting a piano up in that part of you the should, house. Though. You should tell that story. That's a great story. I have heard someone say that. The McGavick's had soldiers move a piano up somewhere upstairs so that it could be played to keep the minds of the children off the awful hospital scene. So it would be awfully busy to go through all that work of moving a piano. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And a nice flat surface like that probably would have been used for the soldiers. Right. <laughs> but kind of wonder, did they play the piano? Did somebody play it? Or I mean, were they singing? Have... Were they singing hymns or something, something. like that? Yeah. Was is there some kernel of truth where there yeah. was there was music involved somewhere? Two days later, mm-hmm. three days later, a week later, who knows? I mean, it would have been a good entertainment at yeah. least for a while. Yeah. And ease some tensions, but again, Absolutely. who knows? Well, is there more down this train of thought of of myths that were shared throughout the years or things that used to be said on tour? We neglected to talk about the six generals on the back porch um, and how that got started. Yes. Well, the five generals on the porch. So wow. I guess the, the true story is, or the as likely as as, um, as accurate as we can be, is that the morning after the battle, at least four of the six generals, certainly no more than five, because one of them was still alive. But yes. <laughs> four, likely four of the dead Confederate generals were brought here and lined up on the back porch, as well as some other officers. Yes. But the number of generals has grown over the years. <laughs> yeah. And a rumor about a picture of them, too. We often get that from older guests who talk about that they have seen a picture of the dead generals on the porch, which, of course, we have none in the collection. What about the number itself? I mean, what was in those early years, what, what was the number you were told as the number of generals who were on the porch? Originally, I was, I was told six. I was told five. Reading a lot of old newspaper articles and Confederate veterans, they seem to be saying five were there pretty consistently. And we used to have a, st- a historical marker here. Yes. Naming five. 
gotten rid of. More the merrier. But I guess really through Eric's research is when it started dwindling down and he really got together and figured out who was where and who was bringing who where and who was still alive here in town at a different facility and so forth. I think that story of the generals used to be what Carnton was known for. Mm -hmm. But they didn't stay long. When you visited when you were a young boy, you knew that part of the Mm -hmm. story at least? More than who John or Carrie were or the cemetery or anything. Well, we knew about the cemetery, but more than the hospital. But it was separate. The cemetery Mm -hmm. seemed completely separate. When do you think you started to learn about John and Carrie and all these stories? Probably the 90s, I would think. Um, Because when I was here in 97, it was a full-fledged story at that time. Like the tour was then, because in the early years, the tour was mostly focused on Randall and those early years. And you're saying by the 1990s, it had changed to be focused more about... For me personally, yeah. That's what I recall. Yes. What about you? You agreed, James? About the battle in the hospital. Mm -hmm. When you first started in the early 90s, was the tour Randall-focused or was it more on the time of the war? Far more on the time of the war, by the way. So it's a pretty rapid shift. Yes, and I think it's probably because it was what was more significant, Mm -hmm. and they realized that, and probably because they learned more quickly. You know, other people probably came forward and told additional stories, and quickly, Randall was not the reason the house was saved. Truly. So explain what you mean by that. That the significance, the period of significance, is the battle. So it's Mm -hmm. November 30th, 1864. So it all has to revolve around that. And Randall had died in 43. So it really would have nothing to do with his lifetime. He's just the creator of the property, the builder of the house, and the father of John McGavick. I think in the early years they were interested, as far as decoration, in what the house had looked like in the earlier period. Much less emphasis Mm -hmm. on the war years. Are there some remnants that we can still see in the house where it was decorated more towards the earlier period? In Hattie's room, the door that leads into her bedroom from the hall has the original mahogany graining mm-hmm. on it, and then the boxwood lining on the outside, string stringing on the outside, and that is definitely from the early house, the eighteen twenty six time period or eighteen thirty time period. There's a little bit of marbleizing that has survived as well, kind of a gray marbleizing through the house, and those are again to the time period when. Sarah Rogers and Randall lived here, first quarter of the 19th century. So, what's next? So the house, the house was saved. The story starts to evolve. It starts to become more focused on the battle. What would be the next era you would say of the history of the home as a historic site? Well, for me, I guess in coming back in 2012, we've learned more and more and more about the battle and more and more about the. The, um, the wit of the battle between here and the Carter house and that Carter had always been sort of the epicenter and that not one bullet flew over here. <laughs> <laughs> you can attest to this better than I about the, the country club and how people said <laughs> nothing happened. <laughs> nothing over happened over here. That's right. It's just a hospital. They wanted to keep their golf course. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. But the real emphasis was what had happened up near the Carter house. Right. Not mm-hmm. here. And then, of course, we've progressed to know more about the slave community, know more about the farming community, know more about agriculture, John's role at the Williamson County, um, and so forth. And then slavery just as a whole, more and more. It's, that's what's fun is because we're always learning something new, I think. And so it kind of mm-hmm. interests me that it's not the same. It's not like a play. You know, it's, it's an ever-evolving story. Are there any key players that were involved with 
the Carnton Association or the trust that deserve to be mentioned as part of the story. So Robert Hicks and the writing of the novel, Widow of the South, would certainly have been a new era. And when was that written, James? 2005. Well, he was a board member before I came here, mm-hmm. but very involved with the restoration of the house and with bringing in experts in restoration. He brought in Gail Winkler and Roger Moss. He brought in Gary Dole, a garden expert. He really helped to secure many of our first gifts here. He had a good network of friends in the music business and so forth that um, he would say, hey, we've got this picture we need a to purchase for so many thousand dollars and and they would help to secure those funds. Yeah, so much happened here that would not have happened had it not been for him. That's correct. And then he goes on to write his novel. His yes. first novel. Yes. And so bus tours, ladies groups. Yeah, many book club groups. Book clubs. And there are still people who come in saying that they read that book. So, I mean, it, had, it definitely had a lasting impact. And then now we have other people writing yeah. songs and stories and poems. And, and most recently, Tamara Alexander's book, With yes. This Pledge. That's mm-hmm. Yes. And driving Christmas traffic at Carnton. Too. Absolutely. And so she has a great following. So this will bring in a new group of people mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, we usually at the door, a lot of times people say, has there ever been a movie about this place? So <laughs> yeah. maybe that'll be next. It's a story that <laughs> resonates with people. It is. It's a very memorable place, or we wouldn't still be sticking around, right? Right. <laughs> Some of the early donors that gave money, we didn't mention. And James, you were more associated with these people than I was, but I just know them because of their their physical gifts, but you know them because rooms were named after them. So we today don't refer to rooms that way, but initially but we did. Just in the early days... Several families gave money to restore a certain room in the house, and rooms were named after them. The master bedroom was named after the Stuart Campbell family, the children's room after the Hellers. The room across the hall, now referred to as Hattie's room, was uh, paid for by Mr. and Mrs. Malcolm Gibbs, a gift in memory of their son. So it was the Gibbs room, and then at one point, I remember it was called the Quarles room, the story being that General Quarles had recuperated in that room, but who knows. That's fascinating. So was there a sign on the rooms that said, no. this room is called this, or were you just supposed to say that as the guy? Oh, there were plaques. There were yeah. plaques. Mm-hmm. We, we still have the one plaque we did. in Winder's room now, right, Correct. don't because that was the Hellers. But so, yeah. I think the first gift mm-hmm. of a room was that made by Mr. and Mrs. Sam Fleming. They did the first room upstairs. And that was the guest room? The guest room, which led to the others. Okay. And the Ridley Wills family restored the small room, the sitting room. And it's interesting that about, I guess, about three-fourths of those families have either close McGavick ties or distant McGavick ties, that they they are literally family. They are. That's very cool. Isn't that neat? Mm -hmm. So people who were connected to the story cared about it deeply in those early years. Yes. And they wanted to see it become, hopefully, become what it is today. Very proud of it. Very proud. And um, the Stewarts, are they doubly connected to the story, Lillian's family? She is Carrie's niece. She is Carrie's niece. And she was a former mayor of a Franklin, a Franklin mm-hmm. as oh, cool. well. And I think that's awesome as a female, too. I think Carrie would be proud of her. <laughs> <laughs> she rocks, right? What else? What's the next thing in your notes that you have? Let's see. 
Oh, well, I think it's really important to um, to tell, I think I didn't mention her, Mrs. William Whittington, Ms. Randall Whittington's mother. Well, she gave a lot of the really beautiful silver, too. Mm-hmm. And their family still has a couple of, of items in the in the family, one of them being a long, a long tall case clock. She gave chairs. She because, gave money to restore the office many years ago. I don't know. Whenever there was trouble, like you look in, back in the minutes and stuff, whenever there was trouble or a gap or something that needed to be done, she seemed to be the person to do it. And I think she's she's been forgotten, first because of her name, because nobody remembers Whittington. And she, she didn't live she was here McGavick. all her life. She William was McGavick's sister. And his family gave the Jackson Rocker. Yes. Mm. And the William McGavicks lived in North Carolina at the end of their lives. And the Whittingtons moved to Texas. Texas. And so I think, you know, all of the older people who started the association, I say older because they're no longer living, but the, the initial group of people knew those family members and corresponded with them and had them out here and so forth. And they willingly came to the forefront the Bartlett sisters are the largest donors to the original furnishings that we have. What are some of the pieces they donated? Dining table, secretary, parlor table. From them, we acquired the portraits of Carrie, of Hattie, of the three daughters. We got from them, they donated Carrie's cemetery record book. Which was a biggie. And so many papers we in the collection. Many papers and photographs. Large numbers. I mean, like we have three family Bible boxes of George Cowan's records of of Hattie and his home at Windermere. We have his association with the Confederate Army and Forest Escort and the Masonic Lodge. All kinds of amazing papers from them. But the only real wartime one, I guess, that is of great significance was the. The Cemetery Journal, which is our biggest treasure, really, of all. And then they gave tons of silver, too. They had the largest collection left in the family, and that's our understanding today, too. Everybody else sort of got, you know, a chair or a rifle or a portrait, you know, and they got handfuls of things. But they seemed to— They were the only living descendants of Hattie. Of Hattie. Mm -hmm. And they were the females that many things were passed down to, and they lived here locally. One of their names are Martha— and the other is, is Harriet, Harriet. Mm-hmm. which are, of course, from John and Carrie's original children and beyond, right? So the, it seems like the family, Carrie and John, they left a familial legacy. It just wasn't known as much to the public. Correct. But it was a, it clearly was important to the family. If they were still carrying mm-hmm. on those names, they knew that there was an, important, an importance to these people. I think so. And they still, many of them on both sides... Maternal and paternal, if you will, carry on names of McGavick and such, right? Randall. Randall. Grow woman. Mm-hmm. So we have men and women named it. <laughs> well, it seems interesting. So when when this comes, we are recording this now first, but we will have already released our episode about John McGavick when this comes out. And I was reading through some of his obituaries the other day, and he seems like... And he's probably not the only family member that left this kind of legacy, but he seems like he left such an impact on the town. I mean, they closed down the businesses for his funeral. Mm-hmm. For the hour of his funeral, they closed down all the shops in town. And so it seems like even even though maybe the story of his involvement with the cemetery was 
was lost over the years, it his legacy remained alive in some way, even if it was forgot in a if, even if it was forgotten in a public basis. I think that's still true today. I think we're still trying to find more about John because nobody closed the town down for Carrie, right. and she's the one that we all remember and talk about today. So whatever it was that he did um, was so meaningful that they they felt that he deserved that honor. And it's so often like James is our institutional memory here that there's so many James things. rolled his eyes big time when you said that. <laughs> he did, but we it's true. We agree with Beth, though. It's true. <laughs> that you just take for granted that you know things, and then when that person's gone or that collective group of people are gone, the story's gone. So that's why it's so important to record and to write down and to preserve documents and, and oral histories. Because it, it just doesn't take very long at all for it to go away. I mean, Miss, you all, I don't know if you met Miss Bowman. I never no, met her. No, we never met no. her. And she's only been gone a year. I've read some of her so. writings and I've read the, um, some of the, the eulogies for mm-hmm. her. In and Dr. Willoughby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, same thing. Mm-hmm. So you kind of hit on something interesting and this is kind of jumping back and forth a little bit, but Carrie was certainly a, a big, had a huge role with the cemetery. I mean, she maintained it for the last dozen years of her life after John died. But it does seem like the story has revolved around her for a long time and John's role in it has been not really discussed. Any idea why that is? You know, as far as the hospital situation is concerned, she was a woman and she stood mm-hmm. out. She was remembered, whereas John would not have been. And then certainly she did look after the cemetery for a number of years alone. Mm-hmm. But in the early days, John was certainly widely known. In fact, I think in 1866, the legislature of the state of Mississippi passed a resolution thanking him for his involvement in collecting and reinterring the Mississippi dead. And there is an 1866 letter written by someone who visited Carton, stayed overnight, who wrote that John McGavick was the generous leader in all the efforts to move the dead to the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Well, what else from your notes? Is there anything else before we, before we just? We'll probably think of something else. I'm sure we will. Any other stories? So years ago, when the um, portrait was conserved um, under UV light and under bright light, when they take pictures of portraits before and after conservation, you can clearly see that the velvet dress that she has on as a 19-year-old. Um, in her engagement portrait, we think, that's what it, it seems to be, is really a navy blue. So as with most blacks that are very, very dark and blues that are very, very dark, you get a black-blue tint. And because that room is so dark, often it looks like a black dress, but it really is a navy blue velvet hmm. dress. Or That's what the conservators say. So I've got a question that could be kind of a fun thing to talk about. The, there's the old phrase that there's no such thing as a stupid question. And I get where that comes from because if somebody's going to ask a question, it means they want to know if it's right or wrong. Um, but I feel like as tour guides, we know that every once in a while, there's such a thing as a stupid question. <laughs> uh, for instance, I'll give one of mine on a tour. I had a guest ask me if we've ever, this was after I talked about the hospital and the amputations. He asked if we've ever looked underneath the bed to see if a limb had rolled underneath the bed. Oh, <laughs> As if there would still be one there oh, Lord, after yeah. 153 or the, years. Or that same bed has been there without being moved for that long. Yeah. Or vacuumed or anything. There's so many layers to that. I was just like, 
That's okay. How how are you? How is this coming out of your mouth yeah. right now? Any other fun guest stories that we, you're like? I can't believe somebody said this. This isn't one that's related to our story per se, but yesterday we had a guest ask one of our guides as they were giving their tour, "Do you work here?" <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. We might better cut that. <laughs> <laughs> you can. I just thought that was funny. Guys. You know, yeah, funny. Like, I guess for here? me, the silliest ones that bother me personally is because I spent so much time to try to make all of our beds and both our historic houses look like feather beds by using packing peanuts because I can't go around physically every day and fluff up, you know, feather mattresses. So people that have not experienced that in their lives wouldn't know. And so I have to be nice, but... They say, oh, I just roll off that bed. Well, if you have a feather pillow, you know, clearly if your head lays on that pillow, it squishes down. And so that's what feather mattresses did, too. They just flopped down. They just went straight down. And it's a sign of wealth to have feather mattresses. So that's why I make them very voluminous here at <laughs> Curtin and over at Carter as well. Uh, but they're always like, well, how would just fall off that bed? How in the world did they stay on the bed? Oh, Lord. So, and there's but, some there's something that makes sense in that too because yeah. you're right if you've never seen one before it, it is a sense. big puffy bed very big and puffy James someone asked me one day about General John Adams mm-hmm. and I told about him being on the porch and someone not paying attention I guess asked was he the one who went on to become president oh. <laughs> after he died. <laughs> A hundred years later. (laughs) So I just said, no, he didn't. Went right on. (laughs) No, he didn't. (laughs) And someone, an adult, one day asked about the chamber pot in the guest room. Mm. Chamber pot in a wooden case. Asked if it was a a toy. Mm. You know, what what sort of toy? Looked like a toy top-loading clothes washer. Oh, that seemed rather silly. Yes, or when people are surprised that you know they didn't have indoor plumbing yet. They really and you're like struggle with that. It's yeah. The Civil War, like oh, and they can't imagine <laughs> that people lived here until fairly recent years mm-hmm. with no bathroom. Said, well, they mm-hmm. were here. Mm-hmm. We've taken things out that you'd never know about. Exactly. Carter House is always sad, even though we're mostly talking about Carrington, but. You know, are they related to Johnny Cash and June Carter? <laughs> That's sad. Or President Carter. President Carter. This is true. But I, again, perhaps a logical question for them. I did have one person say to me, they just got confused about the um, the Confederate Cemetery and when it went in. And so they got the story of Lori's division coming through here and the dead and the cemetery that existed with the African-Americans and the family and saying, oh my gosh, well, when I walked past there, I never knew I would be killed and end up back in there. You know, and I was like, what Oh, like about? as if they walked like, through the cemetery. Yes. <laughs> and that they would end up there, <laughs> yeah. you know. So that was kind of sad too. It's like, no, the Confederate part yeah. wasn't there yet. There's moments like that where it's just like, they, somebody's just not, it, think for a moment and you realize that you're wrong. Um, I don't know. Sometimes you'll say something, and then, like, upon thinking about it for a second, you're like, oh, this was obviously wrong. For instance, at Carter House, when you see all the bullet holes in the walls, occasionally you'll have somebody that will say, oh, was that wall there during the battle? Oh, my gosh. Well, yes, that explains the bullet holes. Well, I'm sure when we finish, when I hit the pause button, we'll we'll think of something that we didn't say. But anything before we wrap up? 
Is there anything you think of? We did well, not I mention Rod's that... mother or Rod, really, mm. at all. And she was one of those early donors as well. Yeah, we really didn't say much about him. So one of the early donors that was a family member was um, Mrs. Rod Heller. Um, Rod that we know today's mother in Winders and Haynes's mother. And she donated several McGavick items. My favorite is actually up here. And it's a black cape that belonged to Carrie. It's a velvet cape. That was in the house for a short mm-hmm. while, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I don't put it out very often because I don't want anything to happen to it, but it's just gorgeous. She gave some some beautiful things. And then the Hellers themselves, Kay and Rod, were very instrumental in securing the land that is now part of the the park, Eastern Flank Battlefield Park out front, that that also was in jeopardy of encroachment, even in our lifetime, mm-hmm. just in the last 10 years. And if they had not purchased that, and saved it initially, it would not have been turned into a, a park. Mm. And the monies were raised and exchanged, and now it's part of the Franklin City Park system, I guess. And the Hellers are still very much involved in what we do. Yes, and they've put their own home in the land trust for Tennessee to make sure that there's a nice buffer between Windermere mm. and Carnton so that it can never be developed on the western side of our property as well. Mm -hmm. So they've protected that vista to the west and really the vista to the north for us in their Mm -hmm. lifetime. We'll probably think of something else. Would you? You know, we can do this again. Would you like to once more? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) James was so against it in the beginning. Even if it's it's not next week, it could be a month from now. You know, we decide there's something else we should get So that wraps up our series on Carnton. We have a lot of fun topics coming up, so make sure you've subscribed on iTunes or whatever podcast app that you use. That way you don't miss an episode. Tickets again are on sale now for our summer concert series at Carnton. June 30th is Johnny Cash Now, a Johnny tribute band. And July 28th is Resurrection, a Journey tribute band. For more information, check out boft.org slash events. And there's still time to sign up for our summer history camp if you have children who are 8 through 12 years old. You can find more information about that at boft.org slash summer dash camp. Thank you for listening.